how do we know that God is real? Let me begin by telling you that fewer Australians believe in God than ever before. Did you know that? Fewer Australians believe in God than ever before. In 2016, our last census, nearly one-third put on their census that they are of no religion. Now, compared with five years before 2011, the last time we had a census, that's 7% higher. 7% more people have no religion. And so that bracket of no religion people, nearly one-third, is now bigger than any single religious denomination. That's a big number. A recent survey showed that about 25%, that's one in four Australians, do not believe in a God at all. Which makes this question really important, right? Like, how do we know that God is real? How can you be sure? And, th- and those of you who do come to church, uh, maybe some of you grew up coming to church and you've never really considered that God isn't real, well, have you ever considered whether your belief is on solid ground or not? Or maybe you're a little bit afraid to ask the question because you maybe think, I'm not supposed to even ask or doubt, but you have the doubts. Well, today I want to kind of say it's okay to doubt because this is a genuine question. One out of four Australians don't believe that there is a God at all. It's not something in the fringes anymore. This is something that a lot of mainstream people believe. How do you know that God is real? Now, the statistics are new, but the question isn't, of course, because for, look, thousands of years, you can argue for, you know, Tens of thousands of years, humanity has always asked the question, is there more than what we see? Is there a higher power? So philosophy and science and religions have all wrestled with the idea of how do we know that God is real? Now, I could come at the, you know, all all the answers that, that, that have been going for the last couple of thousand years, and there's been some really smart people who've come up with some really good reasons that are worth considering and reading about. I sort of want to come at it a different direction, though. I do want us to ask the question, how do we know God is real? Right? That's the the main question we're answering. But along with it, I want to sneak in another question. A question I want you to have a think about today, snuck in along with the how do we know God is real question is this. You ready? How do you know anything is real? Yeah. How do you know anything real? Have you thought about that question? Now, the, the reason why I've snuck in that question isn't just to distract you from the main question, but because it actually is related. It's linked. Those two questions are linked. And I hope to show you why in a moment. I don't know if you uh, watched some good movies in the last year, but a couple of really great movies I came across last year, in the last year actually, both. Um, One in the cinemas and one on TV, um, one on Netflix, right? The second one. The first one is Spider-Man. Who's seen Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse? It's a pretty cool movie, all right? And the other one, I don't know if any of you are Black Mirror fans on Netflix. I I was a huge one, and and so I couldn't wait to see Bandersnatch. Um, Both of them were entertaining and well-made, but both of them, importantly, tap into deep questions of reality and life. So in in Spider-Verse, this is based on a genuine scientific theory that some people hold to called the multiverse theory. Those of you who know, you know, Avengers and comic book storylines, you'll know lots about multiverse. My kids know more about it than me. But the theory is that we are but one in an infinite number of parallel universes, okay? So get your mind around this one. All right, so, so in this universe... You and I are here at Bankstown at 4.40 p.m., but in another parallel universe, there is a totally different version of you doing something completely different, right? In another universe, you don't exist at all. So in one universe, Germany lost World War II, 
In another universe, Hitler may have won World War II. That's parallel universes. Then there's infinite numbers of them. Right? That's the multiverse theory. In the second show or movie, Bandersnatch, um, I don't know, those of you who are older like me remember growing up and reading choose-your-own-adventure novels. Well, this is a choose-your-own-adventure TV movie. You get to interact and choose the plot lines and which way the movie goes. It's actually very interesting. I'm sitting there watching it on an iPad and getting to choose what the character has for breakfast, Frosties or Fruit Loops, but then also more serious decisions like whether the character is going to commit murder, whether right, he's going to end up with a job or not. And there's lots of plot lines. There's probably a dozen or so plot lines that the movie ends up with. And some of these plot lines end up in dead ends and you have to go back and re-choose. It's a great show, by the way, if you ever get to chat, uh, watch it. So one plot line has the character um, actually realizes in this plot line that he is controlled by you. Right? How meta is that? Okay? I just learned that word recently, meta. Um, and so he is in the show and shows up on his computer screen, set in the 80s, the Netflix symbol. And he doesn't know what Netflix is because it didn't exist in the 80s, but he realizes for a moment that he's been controlled by someone, and it's you, of course, because you're sitting there controlling him. How meta is that? That plot line ends up with him killing his dad. Spoiler, sorry. Um, in another plot line, another major character talks about the multiverse theory. If you like, Bandersnatch is all about the multiverse as well. Every plot line is a new universe. And he's talking the multiverse theory and essentially saying to the main character, it doesn't matter if you push me off the balcony and kill me or not, because in another universe, I'll still be alive. Right? And so you get to choose, do I kill him or not? It's pretty dark. point I'm trying to get at is both Spider-Man and Bandersnatch raise important questions, and that is, how do we know if anything is real? How do you know if anything is real? I mean... How do you know that when you thought you were making a real decision this morning, what to wear, what to eat for breakfast, what to do, that that was actually a real decision? Do you know if it was? Or that your decisions really matter? How can you be sure that you have free will? And you're not controlled, okay, maybe you're not controlled by some guy in a, with an iPad on Netflix, but how do you know, I know that we're not controlled by factors that we have no say over, like your genetic makeup? How do you know that you have genuine choices and isn't just your genes pointing you to certain preferences or your social upbringing? How do you know you have free will? And if this whole multiverse thing is true, then really does it matter what you choose anyway? I mean, isn't that character from Bandersnatch right? It doesn't matter what you choose because there's another universe where you've made a different choice. So whether I live or die, whether I save an old lady across the road or push her in front of a car, whether I am faithful to my wife or cheat on her, it doesn't really matter because in another universe, I will have made a different choice and life goes on. Do you see? That's the kind of questions these shows raise. Now, why I ask these questions and what does it have to do with God? Well, let me show you a quote from, you might have heard of him, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is the writer of the popular children's books, the Narnia series. He was also an English professor, influential, um, a Christian. And he said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, that is the sun, but because by it, I see everything else. This is a really important quote. He is saying that God being real, for him at least, doesn't just make sense. For him, God being real makes sense of everything else. 
And so today, this afternoon, I want to suggest that if God isn't real, then there are a whole host of other things maybe we ought to question as well. So I'm saying it's fine to have doubts of God's being there or not, but you're going to have to ask questions about why is anything there at all that Spider-Man, Bandersnatch, other shows like that raise for us. If God isn't real, we should all be asking these questions. See, if all we have is um, what I'll call a closed universe, that is, there's no, nothing beyond, no soul, no spirit, no creator, no designer, no life beyond death. If all we are a product of time plus chance, that's evolution, with no design behind it except natural selection, then how can we be sure that anything is real? That's what I want you to have a think about. But first, though, I want to bust some myths. I've got three points. Firstly, myth busting. Number two, reality check. Number three, consider Jesus. It's on the outlines. But let's bust some myths. Myth number one, this might surprise you. The first myth I want to bust is that I can convince you that God is real. Now, you'll be thinking, huh? What am I doing up here if I'm not trying to convince you that God is real? Well, I'm actually trying to tell you right now that I'm not going to try and convince you. I'm not going to be able to convince you that God is real if you are here and you doubt that God is real. Right? If you have doubts that there is a God in all, just by me talking for the next 20 minutes isn't going to change your mind. In the same way that if it wasn't me talking, but an atheist talking here for 20 minutes, those of you who are Christians, you're not going to be convinced just by an atheist talking for 20 minutes, right? It's not going to happen. Because that's not how beliefs work. This is my point. It's not how beliefs work. We believe things not just because... We've now been given objective, neutral, scientific evidence, and once we get better evidence, we all abandon our old beliefs and we just jump onto new beliefs. We'd like to think that was the case, but that's never the case, is it? Now, a change of belief is not just about having better evidence. No one does that. See, I believe, for example, in gun control. I like Australia's strict gun laws. Probably you do too. I believe in vaccinating my children. And I believe that most people should vaccinate, or everyone should vaccinate their children. Now, probably, again, most of you agree with me. How, if you agree with me, have you ever tried to convince a conservative American about our gun laws? Or an anti-vaxxer about your stance on vaccination? Have you ever tried to have a debate with them? Right? It doesn't really work, does it? You're not going to convince them. Even if you gave them a mountain of objective evidence, they're still going to hold to their beliefs because this is not how beliefs work. It's not just about evidence. You see, the reality is anything we believe, including a belief in God or a belief in no God, they're all combinations of lots of factors. Yes, there's evidence, the intellectual stuff, but there's also social, peer, upbringing factors. There's practical reasons, things that work, things that don't work. There's experiential factors, yeah? And so my goal today is not going to be giving you a knockdown, convincing proof that God is real. My goal is far more modest. I just want to start a conversation. That's it. I want you to consider an alternative. If you have doubts about God being real... All I want to do today is raise another set of doubts that if God isn't real, maybe you should have those doubts as well. That's, that's all I want to do. 
right? Rather than answer all your doubts, I'm sort of going to give you even more doubts. Yeah, there you go. You want your money back? Anyway, <laughs> that's the first myth. Second myth is this. Religion is dying. Now, this is a myth, uh, and you might be surprised, because then I just quote the statistics. Well, yep, in Australia, uh, in the UK, in the US, these uh, post, we'll call post-Christian countries, non-religion is on the rise. Absolutely. Statistically correct. But if you look worldwide, right, religion is actually on the rise, not non-religion. Uh, there's a research uh, group in the U.S. called the Pew Research Center. It's, it's probably the authority on social research because it's nonpartisan, doesn't belong to any parties. It's non-religious, and it projected a couple of years ago projected the uh, the state of religion worldwide between 2010 and 2050. So basically, the first 50 years of the 20th, 21st century, and it concluded that religion will be increasing and continue to increase in the first half of the 21st century with no end in sight. You see, even though Australia, UK, and US have religion going downhill, the rest of the world, Africa, South America, Asia, guess what? Belief in God is rising, not falling, and it's projected to continue to rise. Another myth that goes along with religion is dying. It's probably the same one as this. It's called the God of the gaps. The God of the gaps. Have you heard of God of the gaps? This goes like this. So, um, it goes like this. People used to believe in God because basically we couldn't explain things with science, right? So there used to be huge gaps in our knowledge of, you know, why gravity, we didn't have gravity, so we, we believed in God, or we didn't know how weather happened and weather patterns, so we believed in God. And, but the more educated and scientific we got, the gap in our knowledge got smaller. And the reason why people don't believe in God now is because the gaps are smaller and eventually there'll be no more gaps and really there'll be no, no one will believe in God anymore. That's called the God of the gaps. And, I, and that's a myth too. I'll give you a, a reason why that's a myth because here's the thing, the world has actually gotten more educated, not less educated, but yet at the same time people are getting more religious. Do you see? That, that's a problem, isn't it? I'll give you an example of China. So China, a lot of you um, may have Chinese background. Since the 1950s, China has been, as you know, communist, atheist, completely secular. Its confidence has been put into science and advancement, especially since the 80s, since it opened up. It's really economically, scientifically now leading. And guess what? As education and science has grown in this secular country, which has been secular and atheistic for a few generations now, guess what? Christianity, just one religion, has been on the rise. Surprising? Christianity is on the rise in China. There are more people on a Sunday going to church in China than there are people in Australia combined, not church-going people, just population of Australia, by about four times. Australia's 20-something million people. There's probably 100 million people in, in, in China going to church, claiming to be Christian on a Sunday. And it's rising. God of the gaps doesn't explain that. The other thing that God of the gaps doesn't explain is if, 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 if it was true, then you would expect that no highly educated person, especially scientists or intellectuals, would believe in God. And that's not the case. I mentioned C.S. Lewis. His friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. Right, guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. 
they were both believers in God and Oxford professors. A man called John Lennox is an Oxford mathematician. He's a Christian. Probably the leading genetic scientists in the world who led the Human Genome Project a few years ago, they mapped the whole human genome, is a Christian. And look what he says. See, for him, he doesn't believe in God of the gaps. See, for him, science does not squeeze God out at all. Look what he says, the quote there. I believe God did intend in giving us intelligence to give us the opportunity to investigate and appreciate the wonders of his creation. He's a scientist. He's happy to talk about creation. God is not threatened by our scientific adventures. God of the gaps, religion is dying. That's a myth. Last myth. The myth is that only those who believe in God need faith. In the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s, about 80, 90 years ago, confidence in science was riding really high. And at that time, the thinking was that the only true knowledge that you can bank on and count on, the only knowledge worth having, is the knowledge that can be backed up by scientific evidence. That was the only true knowledge. And if that's your view of knowledge, then of course, belief in God or any religious knowledge goes out the window. That's not true knowledge. But not just that, things like arts and humanities, social sciences, history, they're not, you can't test them by science. And so they also went out the window too, because everyone was really confident in science as the only knowledge. Now, C.S. Lewis, I mentioned him before, the writer of the Narnia series, he was at that time an English professor in Oxford University. Now, he should have been very threatened by that view, shouldn't he? I mean, think about it. Firstly, he was a Christian, religious, believed in God. Secondly, he was an English professor, not a science professor, an English professor, which meant both of the things he's passionate about and committed to, by that understanding of true knowledge, should not have counted at all. He should have been threatened, but Lewis wasn't. He wasn't threatened at all. In fact, he was one of the first people who could see that the whole claim about true knowledge being scientific knowledge is itself a sham. How did he see it? Well, I'm going to show you the claim and see if you can work it out in a moment. So this is the claim. The only true knowledge is scientific knowledge. What's the problem with that claim? I'm actually going to ask you a genuine question. Anyone brave enough to stick up their hand? Mark? There's no science behind how you derive that statement first place. 100% bingo. That was really quick. C.S. Lewis, <laughs> reincarnated. Um, <laughs> good on you. Um, yeah, did you hear what Michael said? Look at that claim. The only true knowledge is scientific knowledge. How do you know that claim is true? I mean, is that claim testable by its own conditions? Can you scientifically test that claim? You can't, can you? Right? In other words, the claim itself doesn't meet its own conditions. In, in terms of classical logic, it's called begging the question. You cannot prove something by assuming it's true in the first place. In order to do science, and for this kind of claim to be true, you have to assume it. You can't test it, but you have to assume it's true. For science to operate well, Faith is required. Now, I don't mean religious faith or blind faith, but it's still a step of faith. See, for science to work, there are a whole sort of a whole number of things you have to assume. You have to assume that the world is ordered. 
before you can observe that the world is ordered, okay? You have to assume that this order is actually true. You have to assume that we can actually properly observe the world. Our faculties of observation are not tricking us, that our reasoning abilities are reliable and it's not going to lie to us. You have to assume those things are true. You also have to assume that we live in a real world. I don't know if you remember the movie Matrix. Those of you who are older remember, like groundbreaking movie. Like, honestly, how do you and I know that we are living in a real world and not actually in a computer simulation and the real us is actually plugged into a machine somewhere? Can you prove it? You can't, can you? You have to assume that this is a real world, that when you're touching things, it's not just an illusion, optical, sensory illusion. You have to assume it's true. You have to assume that we're not in some sort of parallel universe where the laws of physics are actually unsteady, where human beings are irrational, and that sense perceptions are not reliable. We all have to assume those things are true. My point is that those are all assumptions that we have to take on faith just to do science. Right? Science takes faith. Reasonable faith. I'm glad we have those things. But it's still faith. And it's not just science, though, is it? A lot of people say that I don't believe in God because you can't see God, you can't touch God, you can't hear God. But guess what? There are a bunch of things that we all believe in that you can't see, that you can't touch, and you can't scientifically experiment on. So back to my introduction. Here's what I was getting at. Remember, if God isn't real... My point is, maybe those things we all take on faith that have nothing to do with God, though, maybe all of those things aren't real either. So let me go with reality check, right? Let's do a reality check. And to do this, let's do a thought experiment. Assume for a moment, everyone here, assume for a moment, regardless of where you are religiously, assume for a moment that there is no God. Get into that state of mind. There is no God which means there is no, nothing spiritual, nothing outside of the natural order. There is no creator. There is no life after death. This universe is closed. Matter is all there is. That is, everything can be boiled down to biology, which is boiled down to chemistry, which is boiled down to physics. That's all there is. We are all products of blind forces of evolution that has occurred over millions of years. There is no intelligent design to that. Okay, because this is a closed universe, no designer. The only thing that is working is what's called natural selection, survival of the fittest, the instinct to pass on strongest genes. That's all there is, closed universe. Now, assume that that is true. If that is true, and if that is what we believe, if that's our faith, our assumptions, then let me take it one step further. Let's do a reality check, because there are at least three things you should probably question that you all, we all probably believe in. The first one we actually had a little discussion on, reality check number one, do you believe in love? Or how do you know that love is real? Can you see love? Can you touch love? Can you talk to love? No, you can't. In fact, a closed universe view is that love is actually that thing you call love, the feeling, that's chemistry, plus stuff in your brain, right? Neurology, if you want, call it, plus psychology, state of consciousness. That's all it is. Those strong feelings you have towards your spouse, your friend, your baby, your parents, 
Whoever it is you love, that's just hormones working on your brain, giving you a sense of comfort or joy so that you can survive better. That's all it is. Chemistry, brain, psychological states. That intense love you have for someone, that's all it is. Nothing more. How many of you believe in that? And that's all love is. Some people do, actually. But I'd be very surprised if a greater number of you believe that that's all love is as well. But in a closed universe, that's all it is. How about this next reality check? Do you believe in human rights? Now, do you believe that there are human rights that every single person should have, whether they are able or disabled, whether they are adult or children, whether they are male or female, whether they are smart or dumb, whether they are black or white, whether they are gay or straight? Do you believe in human rights? If you do, where does that belief come from? Because here's the thing, if we are in a closed universe and human beings are just at the top of natural selection evolutionary chain, it sounds harsh, but why should the disabled have rights? If this is a closed universe, why should babies or elderly people have rights if we're already overly populated? Or if you carry a defective gene, why should you have the right to have children if you're just going to pass on your defective gene? Do you see? Evolution and natural selection means we actually should purify and maximize our gene pool. So this idea of human rights, where does it come from if that's a closed universe? What about this final reality check? Have you ever had a wow moment? Have you ever experienced something that made you just think, whoa? It may be a moment of such wonder or awe, of some beauty, or sometimes it's, for some of you it's music that really just tugs at you, just gets you to or art, or literature, or sport, yeah? Or travel, you go traveling and you just kind of feel alive and in touch with something greater. Um, maybe it is experiencing love. For me, it's food. I don't know if you've ever eaten food and it's so good you have to be sitting down because otherwise you would collapse. Right? That's my wow moment. Maybe for you it's actually a religious experience. You know what? A lot of famous atheists write about having religious experiences, even though they don't believe it's true. Now, maybe you've experienced at some point in your life just some feeling that you're connected to something higher. Now, my question is, where do these wow moments come from? If we are in a closed universe, where, are, where do they come from? Is it real? Now, of course, if you're a closed universe person, you will say, no, it's not real. Right? Evolution has given us wow moments but a bit like love, they are just to help us survive. So religion, it can be explained this way. If you're a closed universe person, you have no issue that the religion is rising. All you'll say is, well, evolutionarily speaking, religion is important for us to survive, pass on our genes in a harsh world. But then it's not real. And neither are wow moments, religious moments, moments of beauty, moments of enjoyment, of touching the divine. That's all just brain chemistry, like love. That's the closed universe, that's what you will believe. Now, I've got two problems with that view. Number one is, if that's what you believe, that it's just brain chemistry or whatever, 
it totally destroys the idea of beauty. Right? A lot of our wow moments come with encountering beauty, beautiful music or beautiful art or beautiful paintings. You see, if you're trying to experience beauty, the moment you reduce it just to chemistry, biology, and physical properties, you've destroyed the beauties. I'll give you an example. Maybe you're listening to Mozart, or I don't know who you're into, K-pop, um, and you're appreciating it. Now, you could just be saying to yourself, because it's true, if you're in a closed universe, well, Mozart is just a combination, a particularly melodious, good combination of frequencies of sound moving through the air that your ear is picking up and you're getting a sense of sensation of wow because again, it's your hormones reacting with your brain that's reacting with your psychological state. But that's all it is, just physical properties. You see, the moment you think like that, you've destroyed Mozart. There's no more beauty. In order to appreciate beauty, you actually have to go beyond the physical properties, right? So that's the first problem in a closed universe understanding. It, it, there's no such thing as beauty. It destroys it. Um, the other problem is this. Remember, the closed universe people tell us that those things aren't real. They're just illusions to help us survive. But on the other hand, closed universe people also tell us that our ability to reason and think is real. Right? Reasoning, thinking, observing the world, scientific stuff is real. Studying science, real Wow moments, beauty, art, love, not real. But do you see the problem with that? On what basis can you say that one is real and not the other? Do you see what I mean? Like if evolution has given us those things as illusions, love, beauty, so that we can adapt to our environment and survive, then why aren't reasoning capacities also illusions to help us adapt and survive? Like you can't be skeptical, you can't pick and choose which one to be skeptical of and not be skeptical of everything. Do you see what I mean? Uh, most atheists I know don't live in a world of bandersnatch, thankfully, where your decision doesn't really matter. Whether you push someone off the balcony or kill your dad really doesn't matter. Right? The things aren't real. Morality isn't real. Love isn't real. Nothing you do matters. I'm so glad that most atheists don't live like that. But my point is to raise the possibility that if there is no God and all we have is a closed universe, then maybe we should doubt some of those things. Maybe we should be asking, how is anything real? So where to now? Well, I already said, my job today isn't to convince you that God is real. In fact, if I've done anything, it's to give you more doubts. You thought you came in with some doubts, you're going to leave with some more. Lucky you. But actually, what I want to do is sort of Get you to even doubt your doubt. That would be a good thing. Be skeptical about your skepticism. Right? Be skeptical about whether God exists, but at the same time, you should be skeptical about other things too. What I haven't done is made the case that you should believe in God, and especially made the case that you should believe in the God of the Bible, the God that Christians believe in. And you know what? The remainder of my time, I'm not going to try to achieve that. All I want to do, and I'm almost finished, is just to leave you with a thought. In fact, I'm going to leave you with, not a thought, but a person. I'm up to my third point. In history, there have been two sets of special people. Okay, two sets of special people. One set, they've impacted the world and founded great schools of thought or religion. So take Moses, right, founded Judaism. Or Muhammad, founded Islam. 
or Greek philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, or Einstein, or George Lucas with Star Wars. Sorry, I had to sleep him in. Um, all right, that's one set of people. Impacted the world, founded great schools of thoughts or religion. Another set of people actually claim to be divine in some way. Right, an appearance of God or God actually become a person. Right, that's the second set of people. Now, none of the people I mentioned in that first set also fall into the second set. Right, Moses and Muhammad would have considered it blasphemy to claim to be God. Buddha explicitly said that he was not divine. And most of the people in the second set who claimed to be divine weren't in the first set. For good reason. Because they tend to be crazy cult leaders, you know what I mean? Go around claiming you're God, you're probably a bit loony. But you see, Jesus of Nazareth was uniquely in both groups, wasn't he? Uniquely, he was in both sets. His life was so incredibly appealing and powerful that one-third of the world today, and as I said, it's not going down, it's going up in terms of numbers, one-third of the world today claimed to follow him. But they follow him not just because he's a good thinker or a good teacher, but they actually worship him as God, as God become a man. And so I want to take you back to that passage that Jeff read for us and This is one of the um, followers of Jesus who wrote towards the end of his life. Look what he writes. Let's just have a look at that again. And he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is one of Jesus' followers. And he's saying, I'm giving you now an eyewitness account. And if you want to know the Bible, the New Testament, right, is written by a generation of people who either knew Jesus or knew those who knew Jesus. And a bunch of them were eyewitnesses. And his account is of a real historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, who really existed. No serious ancient historian right, doubts that he existed. But this eyewitness, John, the writer, also says he's more than a person. He says he calls him the word of life. He calls him the eternal life. These are, these are titles you will reserve for God. And he's saying if you come to Jesus and you come to know Jesus, and if you believe in him, you will have fellowship. Fellowship is a, a christian word that means deep relationship. Okay, You will have deep relationship if you come to know Jesus with God. Because, well, Jesus is God and become a man. And God will become your father. Because the whole purpose of God becoming a man in Jesus is so that by dying on the cross, he might take our wrongs and our failings in our place and bridge the gap between God and human beings that we ourselves can't bridge and heal what's broken between us and God 
and bring us into fellowship, relationship, deep relationship back with our Creator. That's the reason why God became a man. And John is saying, right, my eyewitness account will tell you about that. And if you come to know about that, you will get eternal life. You will get joy. That's why I've written it. That's what John says. Now these, again, you might not believe in it, but at least recognize that these are big claims. And that essentially, in a nutshell, is the claim of the Bible. About who Jesus is. About what knowing Jesus will enable you to do. Not just know that God is real, but actually come into real relationship with God. Now these are claims that I will not be able to answer today or test them today. Because again, my point today is very modest. I want to invite you just to find out more. Right? Just to find out more. And so I want to invite you back next week. Next week the question is, what is the meaning of life? Right? What is the meaning of life? Come back. And then come back the week after where we're going to look at what what about suffering and evil? Why is there so much suffering and evil in the world? And then the last week in February, right, where we're going to look at the question, what's the last question again? What happens when we die? Okay? Come back in February. It's a special month. If you only come back on Sundays in February, right, it's worth coming back just to find out more. I especially want to let you know that Fresh, which you all have gotten you know that little postcard? Keep that one because that's really important. That gives you all the details. Fresh is starting the last Tuesday of February and into all of the Tuesdays in March. It's local. It's at Punchbowl Community Center. It's dessert. And the format is very different. This is me talking, and obviously you can chat and chat with each other, chat with me afterwards, but it's not really designed for that. As much as Fresh is, it's dessert, small table groups, intimate setting, very casual, Right, there will be a short talk presenting some things to think about, but then really most of the time is you talking, discussing, objecting, asking questions, getting specific answers. There's really no occasion like it. So if you just take five weeks out of your life, five Tuesday nights out of your life to come with a free dessert night, if you get nothing else, you get fed and you get to meet nice people. Good enough reason. But another great reason is you get to ask whatever questions you have. And even if you don't have any questions, other people will, and they'll probably be the same kind of questions you've had. Come along to Fresh. That's a great way of taking it to the next step. Right? That's my purpose today, just to get you to want to come back for more and consider that maybe, maybe there are reasons to believe that God is real. Let me finish with um, Francis Collins, as I mentioned, the chief geneticist in Scientist, dude. Um, he wasn't always a Christian, all right? Like a lot of scientists, he started off as being an atheist. No reason to believe in God. But then he became a Christian. Well, what, what changed? Here's what he said. I might get the band up, actually, while we um, read this last quote. Francis Collins said, Here was a person, he's talking about Jesus, with remarkably strong historical evidence of his life, who made astounding statements about loving your neighbor, and whose claims about being God's son seemed to demand a decision about whether he was deluded or the real thing. After resisting for nearly two years, I found it impossible to go on living in such a state of uncertainty, and I became a follower of Jesus. Hey, it took him two years, and he's a scientist, all right? And maybe for today, it's just the beginning of the process for you. But we're going to invite you to journey with us in that process.
Cool. We're going to sing again, and then I'll come up and talk to you about how to take that next step. Let's do it.